Father in heaven, Lord, we pause for a moment. Thank you for waking each one of us up this morning, for the life that we have. As we are going to meditate for the next few moments upon your word, I pray, Lord, that you may speak to our hearts. And that which we need to hear most, we may, and your spirit may impress it deep on our hearts. I pray that you would be with me, give me strength to speak, and may your Holy Spirit flow through me. This we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Several years ago, I had the privilege to be in the country of Thailand. I was invited there to do a week of prayer at what was then called Asia Pacific International University, APIU. I noticed yesterday, I think they may have changed the name in recent years to AIU, Adventist International University. I had a great time there for a week, preaching a week of prayer with the, um, the students there. Uh, Pastor Johnny Wong, who was here last night, um, uh, was uh, one who invited me. And it was good to be there and speak. Now, after the week of prayer had finished, I had a few days... Um, before I needed to be back in England. And so taking advantage of one of the great things you have here in Southeast Asia called Air Asia, and their lovely cheap tickets all over the place, I took advantage of them and I took a flight from Bangkok to, um, to Cambodia. And I landed there and I spent two days there in Cambodia. I'd always been fascinated with the country of Cambodia and I wanted to visit there, the different places there in around the country. So I first of all went to the city of Siem Reap. And I got there and uh, met someone who they had, one of the students had arranged for me to meet and took me to the place that you may have heard of called Angkor Wat. I don't know if I pronounced it correctly, Angkor Wat. And there I went there to this, uh, this amazing uh, religious monument built in the 12th century, originally as a Hindu temple, later converted to a Buddhist temple that became a, a mausoleum or a, a grave, so to speak, for the one who built it. And, and my tour guide was taking me around. Now, the place, if you've never been there, it is absolutely huge. And so we're going around this, this massive temple, as it were, and we start on the outside, and we're making our way gradually to the center because it all kind of peaks in the middle. And as we're making our way around looking at the different things. It was very interesting. There was a few things that, that stood out to me that the Angkor Wat Temple is situated and points west, not east, as all other temples in the area do, which I found very interesting due to east-west and the significance that we think that holds. Also, I found as I was going around the temple that all of the windows had seven bars in them. Now, I don't know why there were seven bars, but I thought that was interesting as well. And as we're making our way around the temple, we come into the center. And as you go to the center, you get a bit higher and a bit higher as the temple, the structure rises and rises. And as we came right to the center of the, the, the temple, there, there was the steepest staircase I have ever seen. It was like this. Really, really steep with each step like really high and narrow. And that was at the very temp center. And I said to my tour guide, why are the steps so steep. It was kind of the natural question to ask. It was that steep, and it wasn't as if they were short for space. They could have made the steps wider and, and a little bit more easy to climb. 
And my tour guide said to me these words. He said, and it stood out to me. And he said these words. He said, they're steep for this reason. At least his interpretation. He said, the closer you get to God, the harder it is to reach him. The closer you get to God, the harder it is to actually reach him. So God is there at the center of this temple. And as the closer you get there, it's harder and harder to get there. It's harder to climb those stairs. They're steep right at the very end because it's harder to reach God right as you get close to reaching him. Now, the beauty of the gospel that you and I believe in the Bible, the beauty of the gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and throughout the pages of Scripture, is that we serve a God that does not require us to ascend to reach him. Amen? Amen. We serve a God that is willing to descend and come down to us, dwelling on our level so he can minister to us. And this morning, I want us to take a look at a story that shows how God does not ask us to go high to him, but, ask, but is willing to come down low to meet us on our level and to minister to our hearts. Turn with me in your Bible, if you will, to the book of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 26. Now, I noticed here in Penang that as I was driving from the airport here, that I saw signs around. I knew before I got here, but we are on an island, correct? But it's not an island that's isolated, it's an island that's connected to the mainland by a bridge, a very big bridge, I realized when I googled it. It is 13,500 meters long, 12.5 kilometers, no. 13.5 kilometers, 8.5 miles, long bridge. Now, I'm not exactly sure about this bridge. I have not yet been over it. But I know in the U.S. there are certain bridges that you can travel, such as the, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. You can go to the other side of America, to the George Washington Bridge, as you go into New York City. And on both of those bridges, they will have a sign just as you get close to the bridge. And the sign will say this. It will say, last exit before what? Anyone know? Last exit before tolls. This is the last exit before you have to pay money to cross the bridge. Now, I understand this bridge here, you have to pay to come this way, but not to go that way. You pay one way, if I understand correct. Am I correct? I don't know if there's a sign on this bridge, but even as you get close to the bridge, there is the last exit you get to before you have to then pay money. There's There's no turning back from there. When you get to that toll booth, when you get to the place where you have to pay money, you can't turn around then. You have to keep on going and pay the money. Now, when we think about the divine, the divine plan of salvation, as Jesus started there at the very beginning, the foundation of the world, when the Bible said the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, he was on a motorway, he was on a road, he was on a track that was leading him to Calvary. And almost like the last exit before Calvary, we have the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus gathered with his disciples, and there he prayed to his father. Now, the word Gethsemane 
some of you may know, means oil press. Oil press. It was the name of an olive yard at the foot of the Mount of Olives to which Jesus often, often retired. The exact location is debated today. If you go to um, uh, Jerusalem, they have a location that they say, this is the Garden of Gethsemane. There are eight olive trees there, and Christians go there and pray and, and uh, meditate on what Jesus did. You go across the road, and the Orthodox Church says, no, this is the Garden of Gethsemane. And then you go to talk to a scholar, and he says, no, it's neither of these two. It's up the road about 300 meters. Be that as it may, we really don't know exactly where it was. The point is, it's somewhere at the base of the Mount of Olives where Jesus gathered his disciples and said, come, let us go and pray. 4,000 years of human history, three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, it all led to the point of Calvary, and it all led to the point where Jesus was going to have to die on the cross for our sins. And right prior to his crucifixion, he gathers with his disciples in a place called Gethsemane, and there, uh, once in a bit of privacy, he puts nine of his disciples here. Or would have been maybe eight. He takes three of them with him a little bit further. And then he goes on a little bit further and he says, please pray with me a while. And the Bible says he falls on the ground, lying on, on, on his face. And there he pleads with his father. In Matthew 26, if you're there in your Bibles, and verse 39, the Bible says, And he went a little further. And fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. I want us to take a look at this verse and go through it bit by bit. The Bible says there, his first words were what? What's his first words in the King James here? He says, oh, Father. Oh, my Father. Oh, my Father. Now, the way that he says this to me signifies what we already know about Jesus, that he had a close relationship with his Father. Oh, my Father. In the English language today, if you say, oh, and then someone's name, you only do that with someone that you're really very, very close with. My wife might say to me, oh, Adam, you're so amazing. <laughs> she might say, oh, Adam, that was so nice. Now, it can sometimes mean you're in a really big trouble. But most of the time, it's a positive thing. It signifies closeness of relationship. Oh, my father. And reading on, it says, if it be what? Possible. Now, is this a rhetorical question, meaning Jesus knows the answer before he asks the question? Jesus is asking here, is there salvation by any other way? He says, oh, my father, if it is possible. He's asking, is there any other way? That salvation can take place. Is there any other way? You know, sometimes, you know, when we're in life on a small scale, we try to avoid the very thing that we know we need to do. Do you know what I mean? 
How many of you, when you have a list of things to do for the day, you have all these things, I've got to do this, 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 and this. And there's the one thing somewhere in the middle that you really don't want to do. And instead of doing it first and getting it out of the way, you leave it and say, no, I'll do that next. Oh, then you do something, oh, no, I'll do that next. No, 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 I'll do that. And, and you push it all the way to the end, hoping that miraculously it'll, something will happen that will mean you don't have to do it. However, you get to the end of the day and you still have to do that thing you did not want to do. You know what I'm talking about. You just don't want to do it. How many of you have ever observed children when they're eating food? <laughs> have you noticed what they always do when they're young? They always eat what they like when? First. So they got all, the, all five different things on the plate, and the thing they like the most, eat the first. And there's something they really don't like, but mommy and daddy say, you can't leave the table till you eat that food. And, like, and they're like, it's like they're hoping miraculously that in the next 20 minutes, it will just disappear from their plate, and they won't have to eat it. And then you get to the end of the plate, and you have to eat what you don't like, and the problem is, you don't have what you do like to offset the taste of what you didn't like. And it's even worse. Now, I've got about 13 nephews and nieces, maybe, maybe more, maybe 15. And, uh, and I've observed them from the ages of 1 to 24 they are now in that age range. And I've observed them when they eat. And what I, my, my, my philosophy is this, is that a child at about the age of 8 to 10 is when they go through this transition from eating what they like first to eating it last. It takes about that age, about 8 to 10, when they start to realize, hmm, I like this. I think I'll save it. But when the child is young, they just eat what they like first and leave what they don't like till last and still have to go through it. Unless you were spoiled and your parents let you leave food on the plate. I won't say any more. You know, there's a story that I read once of a, a hiker. He was in the, the, the state of Utah in America, and he was hiking through the, um, the wilderness, and something happened. He was in a canyon, and a boulder fell down the canyon. 800-pound boulder that rolled down. And he was able to move out of way, the way just in time so it didn't crush his body or his right arm. But it pinned his left arm down. He tried to push against the boulder, but he was unable, obviously, to move it. It was 800 pounds. He pushed several times and realized, well, maybe I should save my energy for something a little bit more intelligent. So what he tried to do, he was a climber, he had some rope on him. I don't know how he did it. He tried to get a rope higher up and, and around the rock and hoist it so he could try and pull the rock out. Still not possible. It's 800 pounds, 400 kilos. He lay there pinned. He was pinned there for one day, for two days, for three days. He had a knife on him. It was one of those cheap knives that you might buy in a petrol station or something. And he tried to, to, to gouge the rock away with his knife. Still, that didn't work. Then, he tried to cut his arm off. The knife was so dull, he couldn't even get through his skin. Now, that's a blunt knife. He's now been pinned down for five days. No one's going to find him. He's stuck in the middle of nowhere. And on the sixth day, he did what makes the mind shudder to think about what he did. He twisted his body till he broke both his bones. And he managed to get his arm off with that blunt knife. And then walked five miles to the road to get help. It's almost like the last thing that he wanted to do 
that he needed to do. He stayed all the way till the end. He tried, let's try and push it. Let's try and hoist it. Let's try and move it somehow. Like, if it is possible, is there any other way I can get this rock off? There's no other way. You have to do what is the hardest thing. Cut your arm off in order that you can live. Now, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to his Father, Lord, is it possible? Is there any other way? He's asking his Father, is there any other way that he can? And he says, let this cup pass from me. There in Matthew 26, verse 39, he says, let this cup pass from me. Now, what was the cup? The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. Now, Jesus was looking at death, not the death that you and I cry over when someone dies, not that death. He was looking at the death that was eternal separation from his father. And when he saw this eternal separation from his father, and he saw what that was, he recoiled from it and said, I don't want that. I don't want to be separated from my father forever and ever. Is there any other way that I can make it through this without being separated from you? You see, I think that our love affair with sin is partly because we don't really understand what death is. Now, I'm not suggesting necessarily that the first primary motive for us in serving God should be fear. It should be love. But we really don't understand what death is and what the result of sin is because we love it so much. And I think sometimes we misunderstand God's goodness and therefore we don't understand God's wrath. We forget that the Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And we misunderstand why evil people are prospering, thinking that it's okay to continue in sin when God says, no, it's not okay. No, it's not. See, in John 12, turn your Bible to John chapter 12. We have a similar verse here. See, Jesus in the garden saw what death was, and he asked his father if he could be spared what death was. In John 12, in verse 27, the Bible says here, John 12 and verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. Same thing. In, in Matthew, he says, Lord, is it possible? Is there any other way? And here in John, he says, Lord, save me from this hour. But then what does he say? But for this cause came I into this world. You see, this, word, this verse is hinged on the word but. In Matthew, the verse is hinged on the word nevertheless. But nevertheless. Both verses hinge on those words. Now, similar words to these in the English language would be phrases like this. You may have heard people saying things such as in spite of, or nonetheless, or regardless, or however. Now, what these words are, grammatically, now I'm not the, the greatest English student, even though I'm from England, what they are grammatically is what we call a conjunctive adverb. A what? A conjunctive adverb. Now, their function, listen carefully, is to connect two independent clauses or sentences together. Now, the first half can live on its own as a sentence. Oh, my father, is it possible? Let this cup pass from me. It could stop right there. The second half of the sentence, not as I will, but your will be done, could stand alone as a sentence on its own. But the word in the middle, nevertheless, connects these two halves of the sentence and puts them together. 
And the purpose of the word nevertheless is to compare the second half of the sentence with the first half of the sentence, giving the second half of the sentence more emphasis than the first. In other words, the second half of the sentence like negates or neutralizes the first half of the sentence. So when we read through the verse and it says, Oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus, I don't want it. However, or nevertheless, not my will, but what? Yours be done. So the second half of the sentence says, even though I don't want it, I will still take it. Now in the English language, we use this quite frequently, the word nevertheless. Let me give you some examples. We may say something like, he had problems. Nevertheless, he managed to finish his most famous painting. We might say something like this. He was not the favorite pupil in the class. His teachers did not pay him much attention. Nevertheless, he managed to get good grades. We may say something like his father never liked him. He would always put him down, call him names. Nevertheless, he managed to make a success of his life. We may say something like, Adam Ramdin lived in Malaysia, Penang, for 10 years. Nevertheless, the locals always saw him as a foreigner. <laughs> True? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'll live here for 10 years and find out. You may say something like, Mark Finley retired from working for the church. Nevertheless, he still travels the world doing campaigns all the time. We may say something like our Seventh-day Adventist school in such and such a place that I will not name because I don't know is over budget, is under-enrolled. Nevertheless, the leaders decided to keep it open. The second half of the sentence is more important than the first half of the sentence nevertheless stands there in the middle. It signifies that we are willing to do whatever's in the second half more than what we say in the first. But too often, listen carefully, too often with us in our prayers, listen carefully, and in our communication with God, our experience is that the second half of the sentence is less important than the first half. When we pray to God, when we talk to him, too often the first half of the sentence is like an anchor that holds sway. And at the very end, we make something like, uh, yeah, but your will be done. And we really don't mean it. We really, really don't mean it. We make a statement telling God what we want. And at the end, we may say, nevertheless, or yeah, but maybe, or can you, or can you please bless this? For example... For example, we may say something like this to God. Lord, I see a beautiful woman. She's right for me. She is the one. Uh, but whatever your will is, please let it be done. We've just told God what we want in no uncertain terms. And you reverse it for a woman to a man. Lord, I found this man. da 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 we may tell God the career that we want to have. Lord, I want this job. 
Lord, I want to study here. Lord, I've got a place at university there. Lord, I'm doing this, uh, but please let your will be done in my life. Are you serious about God's will being done? Or are you just telling God what you want to tell him? And at the very end, you're just like, oh, but can, can you bless me anyway? And instead of having plan A for your life, you have plan F or D or, or, or G or H. You see, sometimes we tell God something, and at the very end, it's not really an open-ended question. You know, it's interesting. It's kind of funny. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, no, a week ago, I got an email from my grandmother-in-law. My wife, she's over there. Her grandmother sent me an email. Now, after this, I'm going to the United States, and then we're going to go to spend some time with my, grand, with my wife's family in San Francisco. And we're going to be there over a Sabbath. Now, my grandmother-in-law, I don't know her too well, but being the good grandmother-in-law that she is, she went to see the church elder. And she said to him, you know, Aiko's husband, Adam, is coming. He's a preacher. Now, I don't know how the conversation went, so I, I won't say too much, but I got an email from my grandmother-in-law, who's 98. Now, anytime a 98-year-old sends you an email, you have to pay attention. <laughs> you, you have no choice. And she sends me this email saying, I've talked to the elder in the church. He wants you to preach. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that she probably went to ask him. But be that as it may, I've talked to the two pastors in the church as well, and they both agreed for you to preach. It will be lovely for the church to see you. And then she wrote a few other things, and then she wrote this, then she put this sentence in there. She said, please respond to this email with a yes. <laughs> now, when that's your grandmother-in-law, what she's really telling me is, you have no option. <laughs> you say yes. You say yes. Now, sometimes we pray like that to God. We're like, God, this, 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 uh, please respond with a yes. And I'll sit here waiting till you do. And, it, you know, when it's your grandmother-in-law and, she, and she's a little sweet old lady and she literally is little, she comes up to my elbow. I, of course, wrote back and said, it'd be a pleasure to preach. But you understand the communication. That's often how we talk with God. It should be, though, that when we pray to God, nevertheless, signifies that we're willing to do what we don't want and we're willing to do what God wants us to do. Amen? It should be that in our prayer life, we may say something like this, Lord, I have chosen this career. I want this career because it's a comfortable life. I want this career because I like the pay packet I will get in this career. Lord, I want a comfortable life. Nevertheless, I understand you calling me to something else, and I am willing to change the whole course of my life because I've heard you speak to me at A-O-Y. It may be that you're saying to God, I have chosen to marry this person Nevertheless, I know that it is not God's will for me to marry them. And I'm just going through with it from now on because of family pride and pressure. Nevertheless, Lord, give me the strength to humble myself, even though we have set a date. 
It may be that you're saying, you're saying to God, Lord, I have decided not to go into ministry because of family pressure. Nevertheless, I will risk my family's disregard for my career path because I know you're calling me. You know, if God is calling you to ministry, it is never a light thing to disregard that call. I went to college with several young men that they knew God was calling them to ministry. Decided eventually not to go with it. And not one of their lives has turned out pretty afterwards. It may be that you've done terrible things in the past. Nevertheless, you say to God, I believe in your power to give me victory over that sin. It may be that you say to God, I enjoy the secret sins. I enjoy doing this in my private time. Nevertheless, I know you have power to give me victory. It may be that in this age of smartphones, you are addicted, and excuse my crudeness, to pornography. And only you has the fingerprint to open your phone. No one else can get in there and check your history. Nevertheless, you pray, God, I know you are able to keep me from falling. Maybe you're addicted to vices and things that you know you shouldn't be. And no one else in church knows either. It's private. No one knows. And in your prayer life, instead of making that the emphasis, you say, nevertheless, God, I know you can give me strength and I know you can give me power. You see, a key part of our being willing to pray is a willingness, listen carefully, to obey as we submit to God. God. Submission and obedience go hand in hand. If we're not willing to obey, then don't pray the prayer. But if you're willing to obey, if you're willing to have God, have God give you the strength, then pray the prayer and God will grant you the strength. See, Jesus went on to pray, not as I will, but as what? But as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. You know, this passage has always kind of confused me. I don't know about you. Because I always thought, well, isn't the will of Jesus the same as the Father's will? Doesn't it say in John 5, verse 30, I seek not mine own will, but the, the will of him who sent me? I and my Father are one? Doesn't the Bible say that? And yet Jesus says, not as I will. Now, I believe when Jesus says, not as I will, he was speaking about his humanity did not want that. He didn't want that. The Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. The Bible tells us he took on, you know, Ellen White, sorry, tells us in Desire of Ages, he took on humanity after it had been degraded by 4,000 years of sin. And Jesus, his humanity speaking, saying, I don't want that. I don't want death. I don't want separation. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The reality is we often pray to God and we put in our conjunctive adverb and even though we put it in there, it's not a very uh, powerful one. We may say, God, I'm addicted to this. God, I'm struggling with this. But, you know, if it's your will to give me victory, then please do. And it's not with the same emphasis and strength and power of Jesus' prayer where he put the emphasis right there with the word nevertheless. 
All too often we make up our minds first, ask God to bless us second, and at the end of it we say things like praise God when God was nowhere in the beginning, middle, or end of the whole process. And we've just kind of played around with God. See, the problem is God is not really a part of our general everyday lives. Generally speaking, God is not part of our lives. Generally speaking, we see a difference between the natural world, listen carefully, and the supernatural world. And so God helps us in the supernatural world, but in the natural world, that's us. That's us. And we have phrases in society such as things like, God helps those who help themselves. And so we help ourselves, and then when we come exhausted in what we do, then we ask for God to help us. Now, don't listen carefully. I'm not saying that we don't put any effort in. I'm not saying that at all. But all too often we separate what God is part of our lives and what God is not a part of our life. So, for example, let me give you an example. We get a cold. A little cold, snuffle, nose, runny nose, sore throat. And we don't pray for God to take it away from us. No. Because we know that we got that cold because we ate six packets of noodles at 12 o'clock at night. We shouldn't have done that. We got sick. It's my fault I got sick. Therefore, I have to heal myself. Uh -uh, uh -uh, uh Uh-uh. God made our bodies. God is the healer. Amen. I'm not negating. You shouldn't do things, so foolish things like eating like that. But then when we get cancer, oh God, please heal me. In our day-to-day life, when we're out there in the shops, we don't pray to God, please give me wisdom how to spend my money. But when we get in debt, oh God, please give me strength. We only ask God to help when we get in a crisis. See, Jesus was in the crisis of Gethsemane. In the crisis of Gethsemane, and he's asking for God's help with him there. The reason why Jesus was asking for God the Father's help in his crisis was because Jesus had had involved God the Father in all his mundane, boring, little decisions throughout life. So when he got to Gethsemane, it was no different to say, God, please, give me strength, give me wisdom, show me your will in this decision right here. It was no different. But all too often, we shut God out the picture, and then at the very big end, we're like, oh God, give me wisdom. And we're grasping for what his will or word in our life is. We need God to be a part of our very everyday lives. Not only at the very end. See, Jesus said at the very end, not as I will, but as you what? As you will. See, Jesus, what was Jesus willing to deny? Jesus was willing to deny heaven. Jesus was willing to deny a place of adoration with the angels. Jesus was willing to deny himself a place in paradise to give you and I something amazing. You see, when we, when G, is the microphone working? I'll keep on going. When Jesus was called to deny, let me take the orange mic, hello, hello. When Jesus was called to deny himself something, he denied himself something good in exchange for something bad. You see, oftentimes in church, when the preacher calls you to deny something, it's always with this kind of motivation. Give up your sin so you can have righteousness. Give up this world so you can have heaven. Give up your desire so God can live through you. Give up something bad here so you can get something 
good. It wasn't like that with Jesus. His self-denial was in many ways totally different to us. He gave up good to get something bad. He only asked us to give up the bad to get the good. When you give up something good to get the bad, how many of you, do you have eBay in this part of the world? eBay? How many of you ever bought something for a high price, and after you bought it, you never used it? You know what I'm talking about? And then maybe a few years later, you come to eBay, and you put your item on eBay, and you sell it for not even one half or one quarter or one third of what you paid for it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now, some of you have things in your house that you don't want to sell just because you don't want the humiliation of selling it for less than you bought it. And so we keep rubbish. I one time bought a boat. Now, I can't tell you why I bought a boat. I was 30 years old, and I think I was going through a midlife crisis early. <laughs> now, most people get theirs at 40. I got mine at 30. And here's the 30, I went out and bought a boat for no apparent reason. I live in the middle of the country, nowhere near the coast, so nowhere near a lake. And I went and bought a boat. I think I was suffering this crisis. I was no longer 20. I was now 30. It's like, ah! Like, you know when you're like 18, 19, and you're hanging out with all your 18 and 19-year-old friends, and then the 30-year-old comes around, and you're like, oh, old guy. <laughs> I was like, man, I'm that old guy now. I'm the 30-year-old that's, that's hanging around with people younger. I bought a boat. I used it once, and it broke down. <laughs> so I got it fixed. It took me four years to fix it because my uncle, who's a mechanic, fixed it for me, and he did it for free. And when your uncle does it for free, you can't push him. And so it took about four years to fix it. And finally, I get this boat back last year. So I put it up to sell. Now, I, I, I can't even bring you to tell you how much I paid for it. And I definitely can't bring you bring myself to tell you how much I ended up selling it for. A fraction. I had something good, and I ended up at the end with just a pittance of what I started with, and it was just like, ah. Jesus had something good and ended up, was willing to take something bad, and all he asked of you is a willingness to give up what's bad, Pastor Skeet, yesterday when he was uh, in, his, uh, in his sermon, he mentioned God, you know, he never asked us to deny something good for us. It's only what is bad for us in order to get something bad that is good. As we're here gathered at this AOY conference, I pray, I pray that the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane may be your prayer in your heart. That you don't come to God with your wants and your desires and your plans already laid out and just say, Lord, yeah, I'm here at AOI. Can you please bless what I've already brought you on my paper? But you're willing to say, Lord, I want your will to be done in my life. It may mean going as a missionary somewhere. It may mean going to get a missionary training at a training school here in Southeast Asia. Maybe Anan. It may mean not getting your master's or your PhD and be willing to give a year to God and say, Lord, your will be done. It may mean changing the whole course of your life. And it may mean surrendering that private, secret sin that only you and your phone and you and your God and you and your computer and you and whoever it may be know about. And he said, Lord, nevertheless, not my will, not what I want, not what I think is good, 
but what you want. How many of you this morning want to say to God, Lord, I want to be willing to deny myself. I want to be willing to give up what I think is good, but what may be bad, to get what is good, but I sometimes think is bad. Lord, give me that heart's desire. If that's your desire with me this morning, I want to invite you to stand as we close with a dedicatory word of prayer. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would be with each one here. Lord, you know what our own plans are. You know what we want. We have tried many times, Lord, to figure it out. We have tried many times, Lord, sometimes to surrender something to you. Peter, Lord, was in the boat when he said, Lord, we've fished all night. Nevertheless, at your command, we'll put down the net on this side. And sometimes, Lord, we come to you and we say, Lord, we've done this so many times. We've tried, we've tried, we've tried. Let us have the same desire of Peter where we can say, nevertheless, even though I have failed in the past, even though I have my own idea and my own thoughts, nevertheless, I'll put down my net on your side. Lord, this morning we stand to say we want to put our net down on your side. Lord, bless us, keep us, strengthen us, grant us grace where we're weak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.